the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I look at a 22-year-old young woman that had enough ambition to go out to the place where it all happens. She was on her way. And this country may have lost a treasure we never even knew about. She wasn't a flower. She wasn't the Black Dahlia. Her name was Elizabeth. Hey guys, welcome to the First Degree of the True Crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and ex Billy Jensen. Billy, what are these socks that you have on today? These are Johnny Cash socks. Ooh. Do you have many pairs? Because I feel like I've seen you wear these quite a lot. I do. I have um, I have probably like five pairs of Johnny Cash socks because they are just so freaking comfortable. Cool. Okay. From Stance. Are nice they... Stance. Oh, so they're all Stance socks. They're all Stance socks, yeah. Stance is a good brand. They are. Um, what day is not it? An not, not, not an ad. Not an ad. Not an ad at all. You know what? But I did get my, you know, my Seinfeld socks. Have you uh-huh. seen those? They did like a special Seinfeld trio of socks. You got them? They were Stance. Yeah, they do some pretty good uh, collabs. Amazing. They're pretty. 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 Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. All right. What's the day? It's January 29th, and it's National Curmudgeon's Day. Mm. What's a curmudgeon? What is a cur- isn't that just curmudgeon, like a sticky situation? No, curmudgeon is sort of like a uh, cantankerous, usually old man who just wants to yell at things. Oh, it's like a Scrooge. Nice. A Scrooge could be yes. Okay, yes. what other days do we have? It's this- also National Corn Chip Day. I hate corn chips. Like a Funyun, like a Frito. No, like a Frito. Oh, a Frito. Yeah, still don't like those. National. They're good in a Frito pie with chili and cheese and uh, stuff. Ah, yes. Yeah. National Seeing Eye Dog Day. Oh, there we go. I knew I was going to get that out of yeah. you. So that was good. How adorable. <laughs> what else? Is that all of our days? That's pretty much all, everything. Yeah. Oh, you should have led with the Seeing Eye Dog Day. Yeah, I know. But you know what? You don't want to, you want to get the, the big ones first. Yeah. We had to have like a later awe. It was sure. cuter that way. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. There are some crimes that people just can't stop thinking about, can't stop talking about. The details are just too shocking, too unbelievable. The motive, too elusive. The killer's still out there. You're imagining one of those cases in your head right now, and it might be the crime we're about to delve into. But we also want you to imagine what you'd do if you learned that you were somehow connected to that very crime. If you learned that someone in your family may very well be responsible for one of the most horrific murders in American history. And it's for this reason that you won't hear from our first degree connections until deep into the episode. But trust me, it'll be worth the wait. It's important to remember that there are some unsolved murder cases here in Los Angeles that are older and bloodier than this one. But none of them have the charisma of the Black Dahlia case, the story of a beautiful young woman murdered, tortured, sexually mutilated, sliced in half at the waist with surgical precision and then dumped in a vacant lot. It's as though this murder mystery has a life all its own. 
Today's case takes us back to January 15th of 1947. Their original Beauty and the Beast was in theaters, and the songs Five Minutes More by Frank Sinatra and Laughing on the Outside, Crying on the Inside by Mary Max were on the radio. On that morning, Betty Bersinger needed to pick up her husband's shoes, which had just been fixed at a local shoe repair shop. She bundled up her three-year-old daughter and headed out of her house on Norton Avenue in the Limewood Park neighborhood of Los Angeles and set out into the cold January morning. I was walking from my home, which was on Norton, uh, down to Limerick Park, which is the, uh, the local shopping center there. And uh, at that time, it was, was, you know, about the time kids were going off to school, riding their bicycles and whatever. And I had to go by this plot um, that was undeveloped. Uh, there were no homes built on it, and it was kind of, you know, covered with weeds and what have you. And uh, the sidewalks were put in. So I was on the sidewalk, and there was glass and stuff strewn out because it wasn't uh, very well maintained. And uh, as I was walking along, I glanced, happened to glance over at my side, and I saw this uh, uh, strange sight. It looked like a, uh, it looked like a mannequin that had been cut in half and was separated and was lying there. And I didn't glance at it too long because I had my little girl with me, and I thought, gosh, as I walked on further, I thought, you know, that just didn't seem right to me. And I thought, I could see these kids with their bicycles, and I said, maybe it'll scare those kids if they ride to school and see this, so I better, uh, uh, you know, call somebody to come and at least have a look and see what it is. But I, the, the thought of a, a dead person did not enter my mind. I thought it was a mannequin because it was so white. She was walking along a street next to a long stretch of undeveloped land. When in front of her, she saw what she thought was a department store mannequin laying in the field close to the road. And it was in two pieces. And she thought it was strange that someone would just toss a mannequin like that into the field. But she had seen garbage in the field before. She continued to walk closer to it. And after a few steps, she shrieked in horror. It wasn't a mannequin. She ran to a neighboring house and called the police. Two officers arrived at the scene. And what they saw made them immediately call in the detectives. What Betty initially thought was a mannequin was actually a woman cut in two. She was naked, lying on her back. The top half of her body seemed posed. Her arms were placed above her head. Her face had been slashed on both sides of her mouth. Cuts leading towards both ears, creating a horrific, ghastly smile. Her torso had been cleanly sliced just above the waist. Her legs were positioned at a slight angle below her waist. And there were no items left at the scene. No purse or wallet to identify the victim. And there was no blood. The LAPD made the case a top priority. As the crime scene was processed, Detective Lieutenant Jesse Haskins noted that, quote, the body was lying with the head towards the north, the feet towards the south. The left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk. The body was lying face up and the severed part was jogged over about 10 inches, the upper half of the body from the lower half. There was a tire track right up against the curbing and there was what appeared to be a possible bloody heel mark in this tire mark. And on the curbing, which is very low, there was one spot of blood. There's an empty paper cement sack lying in the driveway and it also had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought there from some other location. The body was clean and appeared to have been washed. The police canvassed the area. The best lead was from a resident named Bob Meyer, who said that between 6.30 and 7 a.m. 
on the morning that the body was discovered, he saw a 1936 or 1937 Ford sedan, black in color, sit for about four minutes at the curb near where the body was found. And why would anyone do this to another human being? Who was this woman? Who did this to her? The body was sent to the L.A. County morgue, but first they needed to identify her. They took the woman's fingerprints with the hopes of sending them to the FBI, which they would have to send by mail. But with the winter storms back east, they were worried that the results could take a week, and they didn't want to wait that long with a crazed killer roaming the streets. An editor at the L.A. Herald Express offered assistance. He told the police about a new piece of technology they had just purchased in the newsroom. It was called a sound photo machine. And with this machine, they could take a picture of the fingerprints and electronically send them to Washington. So the LAPD took the newspaper up on this offer. And they sent the prints over via this early version of a fax machine. And they quickly got the answer to one of their questions. The dead woman's name was Elizabeth Short. She was 22 years old. Her prints were on file from a 1943 arrest in Santa Barbara for underage drinking. And what I thought was so fascinating just about this one thing is that I didn't know there was underage drinking in 1943 because they hadn't even had like DUI till what, 1970s? Oh, yeah. So the underage drinking thing threw me because I learned that last week and I just I didn't realize they had that. And also wasn't the drinking age 18? It must have been. Yeah, but she was 19. So I don't understand why, but that's what it was. It's odd. Well, it might have been like a prohibition crossover, weird law snag or something. But I I always was like, underage drinking? Really? Okay. Hmm. So the police now had a starting point, but so did the press. And the press back then was a very fascinating beast in a lot of ways. And one of the first people to see this body up close was William Fowler, a reporter for the LA Examiner. And here he is in an interview from 1997, which marked the 50-year anniversary since Elizabeth Short had been killed. And he had heard the call about the discovery of this body on his police radio and arrived on scene even before the cops did. When I got up to it, I turned to my photographer and I said, hey, Felix, I said, this woman's cut in half. Where the body was cut in half, it was done very, very almost professionally, like a meat cutter or a, uh, a guy who had knowledge of, uh, uh, of dressing uh, deer down in the field or something like that. Reporters from the Los Angeles Examiner found contact information for Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe Short, who was living in Boston at the time. They phoned Phoebe, but they didn't tell her that Elizabeth had died or had been murdered or anything. They told her that her daughter had just won a beauty contest and they wanted to know more information about her background and sort of baited her Hmm. into giving some background information about Elizabeth. So Phoebe told them that her daughter was movie struck and that she came out West to California because everyone used to tell her how beautiful she was and she wanted to pursue a career in modeling, acting. The reason people still come to LA to this day. This is really fucked up. That I is think. weird. People, they don't do, do they do that now? So people do. Up. Yes. Fucked people do shit. very unethical things all the time mm-hmm. for this sort of information this was, for the press. This, That's this, bad. this was one of the things that happened all the time. This yeah. is really bad. Yeah. So it was only after she gave this information about her daughter, Elizabeth, who she loved and adored and, you know, was I'm sure happy to rave about thinking that she'd won a beauty contest that she learned the real truth about why these reporters were calling. Her daughter had been murdered, murdered horrifically, and her body had been desecrated. And here's Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe Short, discussing her daughter in an interview that was conducted many years after the murder. She was a very uh, affectionate 
sweet girl. And uh, if she was out at night, she always stopped in my bedroom to talk. And she would talk and talk and tell everything that she had done and everything. And now here's Mary, a childhood friend of Elizabeth's. Beautiful, statuesque, and had a, a real warmth about her. She loved people. The reporters had their storyline, and now they had to flesh out their characters in this horror movie. They didn't know who the monster was. For now, he would be described as a sex fiend slayer or the werewolf murderer. But the victim? The victim's story would be portrayed initially as a classic tale of a pretty small-town girl who moves to Hollywood to become a star. Elizabeth Short was born in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. She lived with four sisters and her mother. Their father had left the family in 1930. She attended Medford High School, and a friend of hers said, Dottie, which is Elizabeth's sister, Betty, who, who they often called Elizabeth, and I were going to be movie stars, is a quote. We were all entranced with movie stars, starstruck. We spent hours talking about movie stars, about going to Hollywood. We performed using the shorts front porch as a stage. And Elizabeth left school early because of a lung ailment, which led her to warmer climates. She waited tables in Miami, where she met a Flying Tigers pilot named Matt Gordon. What's Flying Tigers? It's like, just like, you know, a name of like a squadron. So he was like a fighter pilot. Flying Tigers is like a, a, a military, like military squadron. Yep. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. And so he was soon sent overseas. And according to Steve Hodell's book, The Black Dahlia Avenger, she reportedly wrote him 27 letters in the first 11 days that he was gone. She moved out to Santa Barbara in January of 1943. And she told friends that Gordon proposed to her in April of 1945. But tragically, he was killed in a plane crash a few months later. Elizabeth then went back to Miami, then back to Massachusetts, then finally to Hollywood. And her mother told reporters that Elizabeth was in a few movies, but the actor strike had dried up roles, so she was taking a break and living in San Diego. But just days later, the narrative began to turn on Elizabeth, and the reporters were happy to run with it. They talked with Lynn Martin, a former roommate of Elizabeth's, and the two had actually lived together when a group of nine girls all shared a place on North Cherokee Avenue in Hollywood. And it's literally blocks from where we sit at this moment. Well, and also that just reminds me of when we were younger and we shared a house with a bunch of girls. Yeah, because we had five girl roommates, but we had Crystal and Lacey also living with us. So we were at least seven. Oh, always. Living in a house on, um, what was the name? Vista Del Mar. Yeah. Up in Hollywood too. So this is a very common narrative for people who just arrive in LA. It's like, you don't, no one in LA is from LA. So Mm -hmm. it's like, we're all coming here together and you want to find friendships And you end up living in a house with a bunch of girls. And that's how you sort of start your life here. It's blocks from where we're sitting at this very moment. And Lynn, Elizabeth's roommate, was only 15 at the time. And she was an aspiring singer and actor. And she painted a picture of the lifestyle that she and Elizabeth and women like them were leading at this time. She said to the examiner, there are many like me, women who had meager salaries who are forced to accept pickups. And pickups isn't really a term that we're all familiar with in this day and age, but pickups were men who would buy women dinner and then possibly pay for other sort of essentials, maybe utilities, maybe you need this, you need that. And they sort of took care of these women. And they learned that after Elizabeth Short moved out of the Cherokee house, she moved to a Studio City motel with another group of young women. There they learned that Elizabeth, quote, had a different boyfriend every night, which I think is an unfair statement, but 
Yeah. It is what it is. Dude, fuck that. Yeah. So the police worked to track down the various men in her life, and they started with Joseph Fickling. Elizabeth had told friends that she was once engaged to this man, but he denied it. And the Times reported that he, quote, was wary of the girl's feelings for him and uncertain that a romance might not be any more permanent than her interest in more than 20 other boyfriends. So Fickling actually sent her a $100 money order in December of 1946, and she wrote him a letter a week before her murder. But he had an alibi and was cleared. So the papers talked about details, like the former roommate who said Elizabeth used to sit at the bar and angle her leg so people could catch a glimpse of the rose tattoo on her thigh. Another friend told the LA Times, quote, she was always going out and she loved to prowl the boulevard. Wait, no. Before you move on, though, I want to talk about tattoo in this era. Yeah. And what do we know about it? Do you know anything about like tattoos in the, the 40s? prevalence of tattoos? Uh, I, mean, I mean, tattoos back in the 40s, they were definitely a taboo. lot more male. Uh, Especially they were an upper thigh tattoo. Sa- sailors and things like that. But yeah, women but getting women, women getting tattoos, no, it was not nearly as common as it is now. But anyways, about her friends, they allegedly were hinting that she was a sex worker. And within a few days, the narrative started to change. She was now a wannabe starlet turned desperate Hollywood party girl. The media was as cold and as brutal towards women then as it is now. Times change, but they stay the they same. stay the same. It's at this point that the media was really portraying Elizabeth to be involved in sex work and things of that nature. But there was no truth to that. Here's Harry Hansen. He's no longer alive, but he was one of the original Black Dahlia detectives on the case in 1947. There was no uh, record of... Uh of any uh, solicitation, offering, resorting, or prostitution in any form. She'd uh, bait and take all she could get and give out nothing. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't put out. So meanwhile at the morgue, the autopsy was being conducted by Chief Coroner Dr. Frederick Newbar. And he noted, quote, a deep laceration on the face three inches long which extends laterally from the right corner of the mouth. There was a deep laceration two and a half inches long, extending laterally from the left corner of the mouth. There were also small cuts on her lip, bruises on her head and neck, and a square-shaped incision that was made on her thigh. Cause of death was hemorrhage and shock from a concussion of the brain and lacerations of her face. And also the trauma to the head and face were the result of multiple blows using a blunt instrument. The square piece cut from her thigh was where her rose tattoo was. And that piece was actually inserted into her vagina, which had also been mutilated. The body was scrubbed clean and drained of blood, and no sperm was present. I think what's really interesting in this situation, and I think that forensic pathology is is really reliable now. Uh, 1947, how could you possibly know what killed her, given the the torture she went through. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, her body's barely a body at that point. I mean, she was, and it's just, it's impossible to know which injury. I mean, she had been maybe dissected while she was alive. So I think this cause of death, I highly doubt she died from a blunt injury. I highly doubt it. Don't you call that into question? Well, yeah. Or I I mean, listen, the cause of death they were saying was hemorrhage and shock to the brain, from a concussion to the brain and lacerations to her face. So they were just kind of—it's almost like they were covering. It's all they had. It was almost like yeah. they were covering their base and just being like, "Listen, this this 
this woman has been through something horrific. So she just she just went into shock and died. So this bisection that was done was done with surgical precision. And there was a thin blade that was used in a technique called a hemicorporectomy. And the spine was severed in between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. The limited bruising along this incision line led Newbar, who conducted this autopsy, to believe that the bisection occurred post-mortem. He also concluded that she had been dead for at most 24 hours. And a letter from the FBI agreed with assessments made in this autopsy in terms of the precision of the cut. It read, quote, The manner in which Elizabeth Short's body was dissected has indicated the possibility that the murderer was a person somewhat experienced in medical work. The Los Angeles Police Department had undertaken to develop suspects among the medical and dental schools in the area, as well as among other students who have anything to do with human anatomy. The LAPD consulted with a psychiatrist, Paul D. River, who gave an early profile of the killer. And he said, in his act, the murderer was manifesting a sadistic component of a sadomasochist complex. He evidently was following the law of analytic retaliation. Quote, what has been done to me, I will do to you. And these types of killers are usually highly perverted and resort to various forms of perversion and means of torture to satisfy their lusts. With the story on the front page of every newspaper in the city, tips began coming in. And actually, one of the first came from a police officer named Meryl McBride. She had actually recognized the dead woman because the woman had approached her downtown on January 14th. McBride said the woman was sobbing in horror. She also said she saw the woman later that night in the company of a woman and two men. And they were leaving a bar, which was just hours before she was murdered. But this lead went nowhere. But that Saturday, January 18th, the police were presented with an avalanche of leads. Reporters learned from Elizabeth's San Diego roommate that Elizabeth had stored a trunk at the Railway Express station in Los Angeles. They traded the information about the trunk with police and agreed to tell the police about its whereabouts in exchange for the exclusive story. Inside, they found many photographs of Elizabeth with numerous men, many military men in uniform. They found love letters from Elizabeth to many previous boyfriends, and they found a Western Union telegram, undated, unsigned, sent from Miami. It read, quote, A promise is a promise to a person of the world. Equal sign, yours. End quote. Could this be from a spurned lover? They sent an investigator to Miami and came back empty-handed. This was a dead end. But Elizabeth's roommate also told them about a man Elizabeth had just met. Who is this man? And the detective's eyes lit up when they heard the details. This roommate said that 10 days before Christmas, Elizabeth had brought a man back to her apartment. She introduced him to her roommates as Red Manley and said that he was, quote, a friend who worked at Western Airlines. He was taking Elizabeth out to dinner that night, and they didn't see or hear from this man until January 8th. And on that day, he showed up at the apartment looking for Elizabeth. She left with him to go for a drive, and the next day she packed up her stuff and said she was driving with him to Los Angeles. So the police were desperate to look at Red Manley. And as they began to dig into his background, they learned two things that didn't sit well with them. 
One, he didn't work at Western Airlines. That was a lie. And two, Red Manley was married. So they staked out his house. And when he got back from business trip, they, along with all the other reporters, pounced on him. Manley agreed to talk with the police. He said that we... He said that he was in San Diego for work just before Christmas when he saw Elizabeth Short standing on a corner across the street from Western Airlines. He thought she was beautiful. And Manley said, quote, I decided to see if I could pick her up, make a test for myself, see if I loved my wife or not. So he asked her if she wanted a ride. She responded, don't you think it's wrong to ask a girl on a corner to get in your car? He offered to give her a ride home. And he took her to her house where he met her roommates. The two later went out for dinner and drinks. And he said he kissed her that night and he found her non-responsive and kind of cold. He then told her he was married. And she told him that she was once married to an airman who was killed. After that, he said goodnight to her. The next month, he wired Elizabeth saying he was going to be in San Diego again on January 8th and asked if he could see her. She said maybe. So he drove there and sat outside Western Airlines waiting for her to come out of the building because that's where he first saw her and he thought she worked there. When she didn't show, he went to her home. So Elizabeth asked him if he could take her to L.A. They stayed in a motel that night, but he said that they didn't sleep together, claiming that Elizabeth said that she had, quote, chills and was not feeling well. They left the next day for L.A. Manley said he drove her to the Greyhound station so she could check her bags And then they drove to the Biltmore Hotel, where she said she was meeting her sister. Manley says they walked into the lobby, and Elizabeth said that she needed to go to the restroom and asked him if he could inquire at the front desk to see if her sister had checked in. He did, and then he said that she hadn't checked in yet. Manley said he waited with her for a few more minutes and then left and then never saw her again. So the detectives have him in the interrogation room for 12 hours straight, and it doesn't look good. He lied about, um, or at least she lied about, where he worked. Um, He was married. What was he doing? Then he all of a sudden shows up at her place and then takes her to Los Angeles, and that's the last place that she's seen. But he keeps sticking to his story. And he said he would take a polygraph. He said he would take truth serum. He begged them. He's like, I'm innocent. Just let me do anything. So they gave him two polygraphs. The first was inconclusive, and the second he passed. And the police had nothing else on him, so they had to let him go. And they were back to square one. So the next week, they put out a bulletin looking for anyone who might have information about where Elizabeth was between the dates of January 9th and January 15th. They used a black and white picture of a smiling Elizabeth. And underneath, with the description, they sealed her place in history as the cautionary tale of the wayward party girl. Here's what it said. Female American, 22 years, 5 foot 6 inches, 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive, bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed too quick. The subject found brutally murdered, body severed and mutilated January 15, 1947 at 39th and Norton. Subject on whom information wanted last seen January 9, 1947 when she got out of car at the Biltmore Hotel. At that time, she was wearing black suit, no collar on coat, probably cardigan style, white fluffy blouse, black suede high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, full-length beige coat. She carried a black plastic handbag with two handles, which was 12 inches by 8 inches, in which she had a black address book. 
Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequented cocktail bars and night spots. On leaving car, she went into the lobby of the Biltmore and was last seen there. Inquiry should be made at all hotels, motels, apartment houses, cocktail bars, and lounges, nightclubs, just to ascertain the whereabouts of victim between dates mentioned. In conversation, subject readily identified herself as Elizabeth or Beth Short. So a week later, a package arrived in the newsroom of the Los Angeles Examiner. Inside was a ransom letter style note, which the author pasted together from words and letters clipped from different LA newspapers. It read, quote, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. Inside the package was a birth certificate, a social security card, and an ID. Name on all three, Elizabeth Short. The letter was postmarked January 24th at 6.30 from downtown Los Angeles, so the killer was still in L.A., but that wasn't the only clue. Also inside the package was an address book. On the cover of the book was a name embossed in gold letters, Mark Hansen. And Mark Hansen was a nightclub owner in town. He also rented rooms in his home to various girls. And police talked with him, and he said that he rented a room out to Elizabeth the previous summer, and she must have stolen his address book. Ann Toth, who was Short's roommate at Hansen's house, said that he had hit on Elizabeth at one point, but he was rejected. But the cops eventually cleared him. And as for this book, there were 75 names inside, which were 75 new leads. But it also had one page torn out. Every lead was followed, but they were all dead ends. On the same day, Elizabeth's handbag, along with one of her shoes, was found by a trash can a few miles from where her body was left, but they yielded little clues. In the following days, letters began arriving to the newspapers. Quote, Here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Signed, Black Dahlia Avenger. Another one came. Dahlia's killer cracking. Wants terms. Then another. To Los Angeles Herald Express. I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. Then, have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Right. And by February 1st, just two weeks after Elizabeth's body was found, the case went cold. More than 50 men would confess to the crime before quickly being discredited. Newspapers hired famous mystery writers to get their take on the case. There were 150 suspects. None of them panned out. Through the years, people suspected everyone from LA Times publisher Norman Chandler to actor and director Orson Welles. But decades later, the clues persisted. The surgical precision of the bisection, the horrific smile the killer gave her, the way she was posed, the neighborhood she was left in, and the sadistic nature of the crime. It all painted a picture of a killer with a medical background, one who used people like toys and one who wanted to make a statement. Out of the list of 150 suspects, one name checked all of the boxes, and that was George Hodel. And it's at this point in our story where our two first degrees join us. And these two women in the story of their family have captivated people across the world and across multiple mediums and platforms, including TNT's I Am The Night and their incredibly successful Cadence 13 podcast, Root of Evil. And we're going to do a deep dive into the depravity and the various crimes committed by Dr. George Hodel in next week's episode. But for now, all you need to know is that the great-grandfather to Raja Pecorero and Yvette Gentile, who is Dr. George Hodel, 
is believed to be responsible for the murder of the Black Dahlia. Raja and Yvette both learned the truth about their family in their early lives, and they learned all about it from their grandmother, Tamar Hodel, who is the daughter of suspect George Hodel. So George Hodel is my mother's grandfather. George Hodel would be my great-grandfather. We knew of this bigger-than-life story that we were told by our grandmother, Tamar Hodel. And we all believed her because she was this unbelievable storyteller. I don't remember a time when I didn't know, um, but I, like, she would say not only did he kill Elizabeth Short, but that he killed multiple women. And she would, she would talk about that like she was talking about going, you know, running to the store to get bread. Like it, it was never like a big deal to her. And it, for me, thinking back on it, like I remember probably I must have been 12, 13 or so, like when I first started understanding, you know, about the, the Black Dahlia and George O'Dell. Public awareness of George Hodel as the prime suspect in the murder of Elizabeth Short increased greatly with a book called Black Deli Avenger, which Billy has referenced as a source for this episode prior to this moment. And what's fascinating about this is that it details just another branch of the story of this family, which makes things all the more interesting. In the book, The Black Dolly Avenger was written by Steve Hodel son to George Hodel, and was also an LAPD detective for quite a long time. Steve Hodel is the great uncle of Raja and Yvette. So Steve Hodel is our great uncle. Um, it was It's very weird. So for me, Steve was always on a mission to tell his story, which, you know, he's the son of George Hodel. He's Tamar's half-brother. And he, you know, discovered all this evidence and I I will never put that past him like he did he's done the work right. and he, he was a, a former you know LAPD LA homicide. Yes, yeah detective. detective and he believes that George you know was the killer of Elizabeth Short the Black Dahlia which I I do believe that George killed her this evidence they're referencing that Steve uncovered we're going to get into that next week um but I feel that Steve and our mom, they were always kind of on their separate missions. Like mom was on her mission to tell her story. Steve was on his mission to tell his story. And I feel like they could have worked together. So, so you always knew that, and you had always heard that um, your great grandfather was the killer of the Black Dahlia. What, yeah. do you th- what do you think the most compelling evidence that he did kill is Elizabeth Short? When his house was bugged. And the things that he said and did. I mean, and just things, if you think about just the degrading of his own child, of his own daughter, like, that's going to lead, I mean, that's all led to the killing of Elizabeth Short. What you've heard is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the Hodel family and the depths of George Hodel's depravity. We'll leave you today with some questions. Who was George Hodel? And why is the murder of Elizabeth Short just one chapter in a life of one of the most depraved and sadistic individuals the world has ever seen? Next week, we delve into the life of George Hodel, along with Rasha and Yvette. And even if you listen to Root of Evil, you're going to learn things next week that the sisters have never told anyone publicly. 
A huge, huge thank you to Rasha and Yvette for being our first three connections today. We love you today. guys. We love you so much. We had them in studio and had an amazing time with them. You will be hearing so much more from them in next week's episode about George Hodel. So please stick around and listen to it. Until then, if you have a first degree story that you would like to tell, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast. Dot com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Fanick. Join our Facebook group. Search the first degree in the search bar. Go grab some merch and stick around because we are going to kill some time. Also take our quiz. You're going to be an Alexis for sure. Yeah, take our quiz. <laughs> and remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But, but not, not that, that close. close. Fudge day. No, it wasn't Fudge Day. Russell, oh, come on. Oh, more death. Fuck. <laughs> Bye, guys. What was it? Bye. Sources for today's episode include Steve Hodel's book, Black Dolly Avenger, The LA Times, The LA Examiner, LA Herald Express, Morgan Korzik's Black Dahlia website, Steve Hodel's website, and book, The Black Dolly Avenger, The Root of Evil podcast, and of course... Our first three guests are always our largest source. Welcome to a very special edition of Killing Time. Nothing is special about this at all. It's just us three sitting here. I think it's special because uh, the topic of this week's Killing Time could um, end the podcast. Yeah. It could. We'll see what happens. Yes. And this is why. We had a uh, recommendation from a member of our Facebook group about what we should discuss today. And here it is. PJ Flores said, name the most annoying trait of each co-host. <laughs> So we'll end on a, a high note that won't really. Get us in that's an, where you're going. That will end us in an argument after so this. So we is have done. to go in a circle where maybe Jack, you start, and you tell me. I don't want to start. I'll start. Okay, go. Billy, start. I know my. No. I probably know my most annoying trait. I don't know about you. My scatteredness. No, here I go. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> okay. Billy's most annoying trait. Can't go first. <laughs> <laughs> this is we're literally gonna start screaming at each other. Should we not do this? No, one? we should. We should. We should. But By the way, I welcome can't, to the last I, listen, episode. Honestly, of the first okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm you gonna, start. You start. I'll go with Billy's most annoying trait. Okay. Sometimes Billy, and this is honestly also a trait that my father has. You get hyper focused on some shit that doesn't matter or that is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Yes. And just, and you dive True. in, dive in, dive in, dive in, dive in. I'm like, Billy, there are more important things to He's worry having, about. He's having, yes, you get very like OCD about uh, random things shit. at random times mm-hmm. where it's like, wait, why are you upset about this right now? And you'll be like, you'll send us graphs and fucking <laughs> pages of data. And I'm like, are you okay? Like, good, get out, go to a coffee shop, something. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know what? You know, it's, after not thinking about it for months, yeah. like you haven't said a thing for months you about business. On yeah, you do. Yeah. Which is honestly, you know what? The passion is there. So it is I'm a into good it. thing. It's good. But sometimes but I wish you would not spread, the right thing. I wish you would spread it out over months instead okay. of like you sometimes hammer us about stuff for an entire day. Yeah. And when then we're like, you haven't even ever expressed any irritation <laughs> over this. I'm so confused. Yeah. <laughs> that's the Billy Rose. Not me, that's, Jack. That's me. <sighs> well, mine are kind of obvious. What? What do you think yours are? 
I can't say. You'll say. just steal my idea. No, but I like, okay, your most annoying trait. I'm not really annoying. You're actually not I'm annoying. healthy. I'm, an, I'm not an annoying friend. I'm no. probably a really annoying. I'm no, not annoying. You're not annoying. Because like, I'm self-aware. I'll be like, no, because I'll say something annoying and I'll be like, I'm so sorry. I know I'm being insane. Or yes. I know I'm being, I, I, I'm self-aware about like, hey, this is a lot. Yeah. No, it's funny because, so you're very much like Kelty is with the lady gang. Hey, Kelty. Hey, Kelty. You're she's not listening. Not listening. <laughs> <laughs> she will never listen to this no. podcast. Kelty, Kelty's no, she hanging. said it's too scary. Yeah. No, yeah. she can't do she's it. She's hanging out at entertainment tonight in her yeah. bungalow listening to this. Like happy, th- yeah. happy songs. Yeah, she's not um, listening to this. No, but like I, I think I work very well with somebody like you that's a very, a type A like get her done type of a person yeah. because I am a more laid back creative yes, type. You are. Um but I but I thrive off of the um I don't know, like the you're very structured. Oh, no, our dynamic is so good for business. Like it's we're so lucky in that way because honestly it's like we're also best friends. Yeah. And we're just the things that you can do I can't do right. And the things like my weird drive, like I'll stay up all night. Like I'm deadline driven. The fact that like our podcast comes out every Wednesday yeah. is like, I'm deadline driven and it works and well, it's good. And, and going back to the annoying traits, I think that you probably think your traits are more annoying than they are to other people. Like you're probably like, I'm so annoying doing hate, this. Well, I hate myself. So yeah, yeah. well, we all do, <laughs> but like, you're probably like oh fuck. Like I, I'm being so annoying doing this, but when you work with somehow us three have worked so well together, yeah. then it kind of just, it we works. all balance each other out with our personalities. So what is my annoying trait, Jacqueline? I don't know. You're, oh, you're honestly not annoying. I love you. I wouldn't be friends with you if you were. I know. You know that. You could, yeah. I hate, I hate most people. <laughs> no, but if you had to pick one, it would be like obsessive. Your anal retentiveness. Yes. <laughs> yep. I hate that about me too. <laughs> you are. I'm striving but, to be better every but day. Here's the thing. It's but our what we're doing with this podcast. There needs to be an anal retentive one, and honestly, it's you. And, and that's what. It's funny. It's like the things I don't like about myself. Are the, are the things, things that, make, that make me good at things. Yeah. So it's like, it, I just ma- have what to makes like you it. successful. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's annoying about me? Um, I would say I'm despondent. Uh, no, it's, it's weird. Like there, it's not that you're annoying. It's just, sometimes I'm like, I should remind Jack to do that. Like you have a lot of, uh, you have a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah. So because you, and it's just the, the, the sort of essence of, being like your own boss and having 10 projects going, sometimes I have to remind you to do stuff, but it's like, it's because you're successful and that's also positive. Yeah. So, but I would say that. I know my, my scatterbrainedness is my worst quality. Yeah. But the thing that's amazing about you is that you're not annoyed when I remind you. No, I need to, I literally tell people in whoever I'm working with, remind me. I'm like, if I don't respond to your text, text me again, because I'm driving or I'm doing, I, I'm also very flying, um, traveling, but, but I'm very, I can do one thing at a time in that time span. So it's like, if I'm deciding I'm working on first degree stuff right now, I'm not going to work on lady gang stuff. Yeah. So if, if Kelsey or Becca texts me while I'm doing something for us, like you got to text me again or else yeah. it's going to fly by because everything is all floating around in my brain in like a weird way. Yeah. No, but you're, you're so good at everything you do that it's like, just having to remind you, but that's not even annoying. Again, it's the same thing where it's like, I'm this person, you're that person. I have to remind you, but when you do it, it's fucking amazing. Like making the merch or whatever. It's just yeah. like, you're great at it. Thanks. Yeah. I love you. So none of us are annoying. No. Except for Billy sometimes. Except for me sometimes. <laughs> Wait, you have to go now. Who's, 
about you know I've been around. I'm older than you guys. I've been around women for a long time. I'm gonna not answer this question. You have to. <laughs> no, you no, have to. No, well, I already know what yours is for me. What? Well, this Bill- is what's funny is we all know what ours are. Billy thinks I'm a brat, and Billy thinks I'm annoying. Like Billy thinks I'm bratty. But no. In- then correct me. No. What what Alexis has a thing that that she does is that if you bring up something, she will one up it. Oh, Alexis is a know it all. Yes. She's a one up it where it's just like if you say like, yeah, I saw that and she's like, yeah, I saw that whole thing and then I read a book about like like something like that. It's no, just you always have like to a be one right. up. Yeah. You have to be right. But just, you usually are right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you're very smart. So it, that it's not a like if I say a fact about something, she will say like, Well, I know somebody that works there yeah. and then yeah, that's what she'll do. Yeah. And why is that annoying? And why is it positive? <laughs> it's positive because you have a lot of knowledge and I don't take it as something that's annoying. I take it as something that is fruitful for the relationship of the first degree. Yes. Wow. Way to spin that into a positive well, answer. No, but I, I mean, Billy and I have talked about this because obviously like in a business, we're all working together. We have, we've had conflicts. We're not perfect. Yeah. And he's, you've said to me, which was one of the nicest things you've ever said, which is like, that's what makes you good at this mm-hmm. you know like you you strive for the best and you and, strive and for way, all knowledge it, it, it's to put out a podcast once you can do it to put out a podcast like five times fine to put out a podcast every week for the last what are we on 70 weeks 75, also, 75 weeks 70, let's, not, 76. let's yeah. not forget that alexis does the bulk of this work and alexis has a full-time job I yes. love you guys. plus other jobs yes like the other podcasts that you guys are listening to right now the, that's all these people do like if you're listening for the, any, uh, for the most part, for the yeah, most yeah. part, any other, any big true crime podcast, especially that requires they, a lot of research, that, yes. that's all they do. And they also have research assistants that are doing the bulk of the work for them mm-hmm. where Alexis is doing this pretty much all by herself. And I'm going to cry. No, but it's, I love you guys. it's fucking insane. It really is the amount of wonderful work that you can do on a 10th of the time that other people have to yep. do it. I love you guys so much. Thank you. This also, anybody that says their their job is so hard to create a podcast and that's all they're doing can go. It is hard. Songs. It's hard. Try it. It, it honestly. But if that's all you're doing and yeah. you have research assistants and you're still oh saying it's you guys, really fucking hard. Listen, if I just had to do the podcast. You know how much free time I would have because yeah. I can. I do it fast. Yeah. yeah. And listen, and I've 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 written for. I'm a professional writer. I've written for 20 years. This is the first. This episode is the first script I ever wrote. Yeah. It was fucking hard. First, Billy Jen, you guys, I've written every episode. This is the first one Billy wrote on his own. Yeah. And this, all by it himself because I asked him for help because yeah. I was like, I can't get it done. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and even though it's a story that I know a lot of, you know, you had to go here and here and put in your own words and do this and that. Yeah. And it was like, just ha- like it was a long freaking time. Yeah. And it was something that was. You know, I mean, it was arduous. It was, it's arduous. It's hard. Arduous is a good word. Yeah, I mean, I can't. So I can't. I, I think it's uh, it's really easy to listen to a podcast. And be like, I could do that. Yep. But it's like you're literally your story. Oh, me. You're trying to put something that is years and years and years of all of this information into an hour. That's I think the the process of deciding what you're actually going to include and what you're going to take out is probably mm-hmm. the hardest. It's yeah, a robust it is. story. Yes. I think we killed enough time. We killed some time, baby. That's That's showbiz, showbiz, baby. Showbiz. Razzle dazzle, bye.